If you would, go ahead and grab your copy of Scripture and open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be having our Scripture reading for today. In just a moment, what Pastor Pete will be preaching from. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses 12 all the way through verse 17. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Excellent singing today. Um, And I'm looking forward to looking into this passage Romans chapter 8, as he said last week, we started a uh, series, I started preaching a series entitled The Keys to Spiritual Growth, and we're looking at what does it take to grow? Our vision for this whole year is to grow together as a church, so how do we do that? Uh, last week we talked about the idea that um, in order to grow, first of all, you, want to, you have to desire to grow, uh, you have to want to grow spiritually, and that's a question I asked last week, and I want to ask again today, do you really want to grow in your walk with God? Do you really want that? Then the, then the second part of that message last week was, are you willing to work? Because it takes work. So we're going to continue with that series today, and uh, from this text here, we're going to look at the idea of what it takes to grow spiritually, and that is putting to sin to death putting sin to death. If you want to grow, then you're going to have to get rid of that thing that isn't causing you to not grow, and that is sin. But what does it mean to put our sin to death? The Puritans used to use a phrase all the time, and the phrase was this, the mortification of sin. Now, in our times today, if I use the word mortify or mortified, you think of it in a different way than we're talking about in this passage. In the King James, in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 13, it uses the word mortify. Uh, when we think of mortify today, it means that you're embarrassed. Um, how many of you have ever been mortified by something your parents said? Okay. Uh, how many of you have ever been mortified by something your kids did? Okay. It seems to be the same people raising their hands. I mean, the parents and the kids. So... Mortified is the idea of, of embarrassed. I, I remember when I was, um, I think I was fourth grade, and I started taking trumpet lessons. Um, and I've said this before, I was a shy kid. Okay? It terrified me to be in front of people in any way, shape, or form. It terrified me to talk to people. Okay? I was the type of kid that people would come up to me at church and they would ask me a question and I would just go, you know, just stare at them. Because I was a super shy kid. And my parents were like, well, maybe if you play the trumpet, it'll help. And so after a number of months of playing the trumpet, they uh, thought it would be a good idea, my trumpet teacher and my parents, for me to play in church. Now, what I was told was this. Now, when you play in church, 
You don't have to actually look at the scary people in the crowd. Okay, you can just look at your music. And so I thought, this is a great idea. And so uh, I got ready beforehand, and so I put the stand up as high as I possibly could. I was a little kid, so I could just stare at the stand. That was my idea. Okay, and so I got up, and I was playing that Sunday. I was playing Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. There was an arrangement. There was a piano accompaniment. And I got up, and I had practiced it for weeks, weeks upon weeks upon weeks. I mean, I had it down. I get up to, to, to do it for the offering, and I get up, and, uh, and I'm hiding behind the stand, and I'm playing. Well, there's a section after the first verse of the song where I would pause, and I had a rest while the piano would do its little ditty, whatever it was doing, I don't know. And I'm sitting there, and while I'm sitting there, all of a sudden I have this pause, and I look up, which I shouldn't have done. Suddenly, this great panic went over me of, there are people out there. Now, the church that I grew up in was a larger church. We probably had, at that time, about 500 people in the church. And I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world did I just get myself into? And I panicked. And the rest of the song probably did not sound like, "Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It probably sounded like a uh, two-year-old blowing into some instrument. It was bad. And I remember walking off the stage, and I think I was so embarrassed, I left my music there, and I just walked off the stage, and I remember thinking, I don't ever want to go to church again. I was mortified. Now that's the idea of mortified that we think of. And maybe in some sense, the real definition of mortified was what I was feeling at that moment. Because the real sense, mortified, is a word that means to be killed. And I would have been satisfied with that in the moment. When we talk about to kill, that means something serious, doesn't it? The Puritans said that we are to mortify or we're to have the mortification of our sin. The, the idea was they understood that we are in a mortal combat. This mortal combat is, a, is with an enemy that, that is not around us. It's an enemy that's inside. It's our flesh. We're in the battle with our flesh, and we have to deal with that. Paul talked about death in in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Look there, it says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. In other words, what Paul is saying there is to think on things of the flesh is death. It's the same idea he says in verse 13 when he says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he uses this idea of death, and it's not a physical death that he's talking about in this passage. He's not saying that you're going to die physically. What he's talking about here in this passage is a spiritual death, an eternal separation from God. What Paul is saying, therefore, is this. And this is the the essence of my message. What Paul is saying is this. Kill your sin or it'll kill you. He's saying kill your sin or it'll kill you. It's, in essence, it's the same thing he said in Galatians, the book to the church at Galatia, when he says, For the one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. The idea of corruption is decay, death. It's an idea that Paul talked about all over the place. And so basically Paul comes, and I'm coming to you today, that says basically there are two ways to live. And there are two outcomes from those two ways. To live according to the flesh ends in eternal death. To live according to the Spirit ends with eternal life. Now which do you want? One preacher said it this way, either sin must be our enemy or God will. 
There's no other alternative. It's serious business. I'm going to read uh, just the two main verses. Pastor Will already read these, but I'm going to read two main verses. The two verses we're going to focus on today. Uh, Romans 8, 12, and 13. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live, but if by the, if you, excuse me, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. God, I pray you'll help us to understand this text. Uh, it can be overwhelming. It can be a challenge. Uh, it can be, from our flesh, hard to grasp. So, oh, Lord, I pray you'll help us to understand it. Help my words to be clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do to look at these passages, verses today, and I want to understand three points about killing our sin. What does this mean? First of all, to kill our sin... Your obligation is to the Lord, not to the flesh. Now, Paul actually, in this first verse, in verse 12, actually in some ways has an incomplete thought. Okay? Because notice what he says then. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Okay? Now, if someone says we are debtors, then what you're expecting them to tell you is who you're a debtor to. But he doesn't do that. He says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Boom. He doesn't tell us the rest. He kind of stops there, but what he implies from that is this. You are not to be debtors to your flesh, but the opposite of that is you are to be debtors, you are to be obligated to the Lord. Why? Well, he says there, so then. What does he mean by that? Well, we could go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, but we're not going to do that. I just want to read a few verses and look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 is one that uh, many of you know. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room, every single person on this earth has committed a sin. What is a sin? A sin is something that is a, uh, a, a, something that attacks the character of God and goes against the character of God. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, something that we do wrong. In other words, God is love, and so if we do anything that isn't loving, we've now committed a sin. And we could talk about any aspect of God and we do the same thing. But he says all of us have sinned and therefore all of us fall short of God's glory. None of us achieves what God wants us to be. He goes on and he says, but that's, that's the bad news. But the good news and all are justified by grace as a gift. Even though all of us have sinned, God has made an opportunity for all of us to be different. And how does that happen? That happens through the grace of God, the free gift of God. We talked about that last week. Uh, Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Through this rescue that comes through Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word, but basically it means substitute. That, That Jesus Christ is our substitute. How is He our substitute? By the blood. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, He became our substitute. And therefore, even though we are sinners then therefore, because of God's uh, substitute, we can uh, be a believer. This is to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. God, because of what Jesus Christ did, He forgives us our sins. So, uh, He continues on with this thought through chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. He says, now we're dead to sin. It should no longer be a part of us. We'll get to that in a minute. But... 
we come to chapter 8 and verse 12, he says, So then, because of what Jesus Christ did for us, we are debtors. We are obligated. Not to our flesh, but to Christ. Now, first of all, what does he mean by the flesh? The flesh is our old nature. Now, if you have had a child, you know what this means. Okay? You do not have to teach your uh, little infant how to get angry. Okay? You just don't give them what they want and they get angry. That is our old nature. That is our flesh. That is what's being talked about in this passage. Uh, is that that flesh. Now, he says to live, uh, in verse 12, he says, we're not debtors to our flesh, to live according to the flesh. The idea of live according to the flesh means that we live under domination of the flesh. In other words, we live under domination of our desires, our self-centered, sinful desires that are opposed to God and not subject to His Word. Look at chapter 8, uh, Romans chapter 8, look at verse 7, talking about this this mind that is on the flesh, he says in verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is what? It's hostile to God. It's greatly opposed to God. There is nothing in me that agrees with God without Jesus Christ. There's nothing about my flesh that wants to be a part of God. It says the mind that is set on the flesh is is hostile to God. Then notice what it says next, for it does not submit to God's law. In other words, it does not listen to God's word. We conclude from these things that those who live habitually according to the flesh, constantly according to the flesh, are not Christians, are not born again. So what Paul is addressing here is this obligation. Notice what he says in verse 12 again. Who is he talking to? So then, brothers... He's talking to people who who claim the name of Jesus Christ. He's talking to people who say uh, they are a child of God. And so we need to understand as we go through this. So what does that tell us? He's telling those who claim to know the name of Jesus Christ, hey, you're no longer debtors to the flesh. See, he's addressing people that are Christians and saying, you need to understand that, that that flesh can still have dominance over you, control over you. One author said this, It is tremendously important to grasp the idea of verse 12 because it teaches that beyond all question that a believer still has the sinful nature within them despite having been crucified with Christ. You still have that flesh in you. You could be here today and you know you're 90 years old and you were saved when you were 5. You've been a Christian for 85 years and yet you know what? You still have that flesh in you. still there. Still, you know it. Something happens and something pops up and says, I want to handle this my own way as flesh. flesh." The flesh, even though we are Christians, the flesh has not been completely eliminated. One preacher put it this way, Say what some men will, we are never for an hour here below exempt from the elements and conditions of the evil that resides in not only around us, but within us. There's never a time in our life, and and that writer said, not even for an hour, where we're not influenced and pressured and, and harassed 
by our sinful flesh. Remember this flesh that I said just a few moments ago is always opposed to God? It's, it's there. See, the problem is that some Christians think that, hey, I'm a Christian, so it doesn't impact me anymore. Turn back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. In Romans 6, 6, it says, We know that our old flesh was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here is uh, the reason that many believe that our old nature was eliminated when Christ was crucified because of this verse. It says, hey, we, are, uh, we, we died, our flesh died with Christ, and that is a, is a representation of our standing before God, but it's not a representation of our, our, our actual life. We have to live under the dominion uh, of this flesh that continues to bother us. And so when we say, hey, I've already died in my flesh, it doesn't impact me, we are minimalizing the, the danger that this monster of our flesh has within our hearts, even in the godliest of saints. Even the most godly of saints struggle with their flesh. Let me ask you this question. If you're, if you're at home and an enemy is threatening to kill you, do you ignore it? No, you don't. You do everything in your power either to get away or deal with the problem. And what, what Paul is saying here is this. You have no obligation to this flesh. It has done nothing good for you. It has done nothing for you that has been positive, and you owe it nothing. And so if you know that problem is there, you know that I have this flesh, I have this sin, then he's saying this, do something about it. But by implication, he's telling us this. We are no longer, uh, we, we no longer debtors to our flesh, but by implication, he's saying we owe Christ, we owe God everything. Look back at Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans 5.8 says this, But Christ shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we go, oh God, everything? Because God uh, looked down and he saw a flesh-driven world. He looked down and he saw people who were completely dominated by their sin. And he said, you know what, I, I don't want this to stay like this. So even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the worst part of who we are, God sent His Son down to die for us. To be that propitiation, to be that substitute on a cross. A cross that should have been yours, that should have been mine. Jesus took our place. And so therefore, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, therefore there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. So we owe God everything. It's because of His grace, because of His love that we are there. So we are no longer obligated to the flesh, but we're obligated to the Lord. In order to kill your sin, you need to be aware of that. The second thing, to kill your sin, you must understand the consequences. Look at verse 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, that will die is, is future tense, but uh, the Greek actually makes it a little bit more specific than that. Literally, the Greek says this, if you uh, live according to the flesh, 
you are about to die. It's the idea of uh, it's in the future, but it's coming close. But what it does imply is that you still have time to repent. You still have time to avert the horrible consequences. Paul is telling us two things in, in, this, in this phrase. First of all, he's telling us that a life un, uh, of unchecked sin leads to death that is eternal. Now, death is a strong word. It's one that uh, we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about death. It's a strong thing. Uh, and, and in contrast to that, the Bible says that those who live by the Spirit have life. But it's strong. I mean, he doesn't say in this passage, he doesn't say if you don't kill your sins, you're going to lose some rewards in heaven. He doesn't say that. He wants us to see this as as a mortal combat. Either you kill your sins or they're going to kill you. It's not just an early death. It's not just uh, uh, problems in heaven. It's not just that. It's, It's eternal death. It's the same thing that that Paul said in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, uh, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Here in Colossians, Paul says to the people, Hey, put these things to death. Get rid of them. And it's because of these things that God's wrath is coming pretty strong words. But it's not just Paul that's saying these things. In these warnings, Paul is following the thought of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ say? In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, He said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. The alternative to the sin, uh, it, it, to getting rid of the sin is Hell your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now in this passage, Jesus does not literally mean tear out your eye or cut off your hand. He does not, he's not telling us to do that. That wouldn't solve the problem. That wouldn't solve the root issue. He's warning you, if you don't get radical about your sin, then you're spending eternity in hell. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking Christians are saved by grace, not by works. Aren't we eternally secure? But I think you need to notice that both Peter, excuse me, both Paul and Jesus here are saying that if you don't kill your sin, you'll end up in hell. Now, I do believe in eternal security. But I think what is being addressed here is something different. And let me let me show you what I mean by that. If you continue in this sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, it goes on to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus addresses this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast demons in your name? Or we could put it in today's language, did we not go to church? Weren't we Sunday school teachers? Weren't we heavily involved in what was going on in the church program? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
See, those who truly know Christ will live in obedience to Him. Which means they kill their sin. Now, notice, I said that means they kill their sin. It does not mean that we do not have sin. If you are a Christian today, as I said, you still have that flesh in you, and so you are going to still sin. The question is, do you kill it? Or do you love it? I believe there are many false believers who serve in ministry today. Sometimes even from the pulpit. Or from the the seats. They don't kill their sin. I believe in Romans chapter 8 when Paul is saying, So then, brothers. He understands that he's talking to people who who, uh, uh, are brothers, but some of them are not really child of children of God. Because they haven't really killed their sin. John Piper says it this way, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit is the daily practice of killing sin in your life. And it is the result of being justified and the evidence that you are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. In other words, what he's saying there is that the evidence of the fact that you have been justified by God, that you have been saved, is that... You kill the sin in your life. Don't hang on to it. He adds this. Listen carefully. He adds this. If you are not at odds with sin, then you are not at home with Jesus. Not because being at odds with sin makes you at home with Jesus, but because being at home with Jesus makes you at odds with sin. In other words, if you are a child of God, your sin is not going to sit well. Now there's times where we allow that sin to come in and we allow it to dwell too long. We're going to put it away. We cannot grow as individuals and we cannot grow as a church body if if, if we're okay with our sin. We can't. One author even put it more bluntly than than John Piper when he said this, Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian, dominated by your sinful nature, rather than living according to the Spirit, you will perish like a non-Christian because you are a non-Christian. That's pretty strong. There are a lot of people that go around with the title Christian who live like non-Christians. And what? these authors are saying what Scripture is telling us is, is that the reason that they live like non-Christians is because they are non-Christians. A life of unchecked sin leads to eternal death. Secondly, about this, sin is not something that we should take casually. Sin is not something we should take casually. Sin always destroys lives, whether now or for eternity. Sin has this problem, though, that, that, uh, that affects us, and that is that sin, or, or specifically Satan, dangles uh, sin in front of us with a promise of happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction. But it's only a bait that lures us into a trap. Remember what Paul said, if you are in this passage, he said, if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. 
I believe Satan tries to minimize the, the serious nature of our sin. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we, we fall into that trap. We excuse it as no big deal. We tolerate it as normal. And sometimes we even repackage it as a good thing. You'd be like a Christian who, who says this, I've lived with this angry, nagging wife for years, and it's impossible to please her. But now I've met a wonderful woman at work who treats me right. Don't I deserve a little happiness after what I've had to endure? And so he justifies his adultery. He justifies his divorce. We do it. Maybe not on that scale, but we do it, I think, often. You know, (laughs) a little moment of candidness here. Okay, if I'm at home and one of my kids is acting up, I find myself at times justifying my anger. And I remember even recently where I was getting angry and frustrated at uh, one of my kids. You don't know which one because they're both perfect, so it's another one that you don't know about. Uh, and I was getting angry about something and, and I was causing this this thing to get me more upset and I remember I'm praying and I'm because oftentimes in those situations I'll stop and pray God help me and I'm praying and I'm like God if you would just help my kid do right I wouldn't whoa wait a second see what I just did and I remember I was praying that and I stopped mid-sentence in my prayer and said you idiot you just blamed your kids for your sin and we do that don't we not just our kids, but we blame, you know, if my boss wasn't such a jerk, then I wouldn't have to act that way that I acted. If, if this wasn't the case, then we justify it. And, and here, Paul is telling us, we've got to put it to death. Because it's serious. It's serious. As I said earlier, some Christians don't even view themselves as sinners. They view themselves as saints who once in a while maybe sin. They insist, hey, we're dead to our sin, and so I don't need to fight against it. And they minimize the deadly enemy of sin. And they live with it, and they dwell with it, and they hang on to it, and they, and they don't think it's a big deal. I heard a number of years ago about a, a French aristocrat uh, named Baron de Arcy who, who kept a two-year-old lion in his house as a pet. You can see where this is going, can't you? And one night, he tried to get his, his pet to go into the bathroom where the, where the lion would stay for the night and the lion didn't have anything to do with it. And he turned on his, on his owner and he, in minutes, clawed him to death. You know, in the same way it's true, just, just like uh, that lion, sometimes that, that indwelling sin that comes into our life, it may, may be nice at first and it may uh, uh, seem like it's not a big deal, but at some point it turns on you. You need to kill your sin or it will kill you. And finally, kill your sin. How do we do it? We must rely on the Spirit. Notice verse 13 again of chapter 8. He says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a daily process that will not end until the time when Jesus returns. Remember the, 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 the example that Jesus gave? Hey, if your eye offend you, pluck it out, or if your hand, cut it off. And what is Jesus implying from that? He's, 
He's not actually telling you to do that, but he is implying something. He's implying that it's a painful process. See, getting rid of sin in our life is not something easy. You know, we don't wake up in the morning and go, eh, today I'm not going to sin. Guess what? You will. you got to keep going as long as you're in this body. Uh, there was a writer uh, that uh, John Owens used to write a lot about this idea of mortifying our, our sin, mortifying our flesh. Uh, and he said this, you, you, when, when sin lets you alone, you may let sin alone. In other words, what he was saying is this, is there comes a time in your life where sin stops being an issue, where you stop sinning, then you can let it go. And, and, and the time is when? When Jesus returns. What does Paul mean by this phrase at the end of verse uh, 13? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does he mean by that? Let's dissect that phrase into pieces. First of all, he says, by the Spirit. What does this mean? This means you rely on the Spirit or you trust in the power of God in your life. The Holy Spirit is not a tool that you use. It's a person that you trust and that you trust that the Holy Spirit knows what's best for you. There's a mystery involved because we're responsible to trust and to obey, and yet it's the Spirit who gives us the power. It's a, it's a strange balance throughout Scripture that we see. Let me give you another example. In Philippians, Paul is talking about this. Notice what he says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then notice this, this conflict that seems to be in this verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works. Say, wait a second. Paul confused? No, this is, this is the balance. He says, work it out. In other words, it takes effort on our part. But it's God who works. In other words, you can't do it without God. We have, to be, we have to understand that balance, that it's not a passive thing where we sit back and go, you, know, you don't get up in the morning and go, hey God, help me to be sinless today, and God goes, okay, I'll do that for you. No, it's now, it's, it's an active thing that we have to, moment by moment by moment, do that. Matthew Henry it said in his commentary, he says, we cannot do it without the Spirit working in us, and the Spirit will not do it without our doing our endeavor. There's both involved. When we rely on the Spirit, He gives us the power to control ourselves, which includes killing our sin. So, by the Spirit means we come to God and we say, God, I cannot do this alone. I need Your Holy Spirit's work in my life. And how does He do that? He does it through the Word. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but He does it through the Word as you study the Word. We rely on Him. Secondly, He goes on and He says, uh, for if by the Spirit you put to death. What does he mean by putting to death? It means cutting off the sin before it goes anywhere. We must take radical action to separate ourselves from sin. We must take radical action. We must do this. Now why does he say in this passage, the deeds of the body? I think what he means by that is this, is that uh, it is the body that works out all of these sins. And so we must realize that these are the, the deeds of our body. And, and uh, refers to, Paul refers in other places about the body of sin and the body of flesh and uh, the members of the body uh, as serving as 
instruments of unrighteousness. And so we need to work these things out. But if, if we kill it, uh, we, can, we can control it. We can dominate it. It will never be out of our lives. We can. But specifically, we need to work on it in the, in the thought level of our lives and kill it in our thoughts. Uh, sin that is expressed through the body always starts in the mind. So control. In conclusion, the next few moments, what I want to do is I want to give you some practical steps. Okay? How do we kill? This is not your notes. Sorry. So, uh, how do we kill our sin? Six things here quickly I want to go through. First of all, determine to be godly and discipline yourself for that purpose. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul talks to Timothy about this, uh, and he talks about bodily exercise, but then he says, but we are to exercise ourselves to godliness. It takes work. We aim to become a man or a woman of God, and so that my life glorifies the God who saves me. And so, in light of that, we make plans not to sin. We work for that. We discipline ourselves. In life, we times you you know you understand this. You go through patterns in life, and and, uh, and and your life sometimes sets you up to sin. And so you need to understand uh, and study yourself. Take some time and look at that. Study your own life and say, hey, when are the areas? When are the times? When are the situations? And sometimes you can't avoid them, but find ways to cut out those opportunities for sin. If you are easily tempted for pornography, set up safeguards and accountability to keep you from that temptation. If, if you are tempted to have a cruel tongue, set up uh, accountability people who will, who will have enough love and compassion to say to you, hey, that was not nice what you said. If you are one who is prone to uh, any number of sins, set up guards in your life. Discipline here implies that we're going against our immediate feelings and impulses for a higher goal. Just as an athlete who, who wants to win, so he avoids foods and he works himself hard. The same way as a Christian. You know what? I, I want to have victory in this way and so I've got to cut some things out and it might be things that aren't horrible, but they're things that are causing me to sin. And I think this is an area sometimes as Christians we don't take seriously. We don't. And we open the door for, for temptations in way too many ways. And then we're shocked when sin comes in. We need to discipline ourselves for the goal of honoring God. Secondly, we need to kill the sin at its roots so it will not bear deadly fruits. John Owen that I mentioned earlier, he said this, you can knock the fruit off the tree, but if you don't want it to grow, you've got to cut the tree down at its roots. Yeah, it's easy to say, okay, I have this sin that I'm doing, and yeah, it's there, but uh, you know, something I learned in college in counseling classes was uh, you always got to go deeper. you got to go deeper to find the real problem. And it, it, it might be that you're expressing anger a lot, but really the problem probably is much deeper than that. What's causing that anger? Attack that issue. Because it might be that you're upset over something, you're bitter about something, and deal with that so that the, the, the fruit doesn't even grow. Find out what that is. Deal with it at the root and cause it. If you're struggling with that, uh, seek someone that can help you. 
when lust and greed and selfishness or pride pop in your mind, cut the thought off right there. Don't even entertain it at all. Thirdly, cry out to God for deliverance and flee. This is that balance that I talked about a few moments ago, but you must trust in God, but you must also take action. God uh, said uh, to us in Psalm 50, He says this, Call upon me in day of trouble, and I will rescue you. But then also, God tells us through the inspiration of Scripture, Paul says in, in 2 Timothy, Flee youthful lusts. These are the both sides of that. God says, Call upon me and I will rescue you. But then He also tells us to run. Get away from the sin. Pray and run. Pray and run. Pray and run. God, I cannot do this, but I'm going to run. God, I cannot be a part of this sin, but I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. Maybe it's associations that you know are causing you a problem. It's not just enough to say, hey, I'm going to pray about it. It's finding ways to avoid it. I remember uh, when I was in college, I worked at a sports store for a period of time, and uh, uh, my lunchtime was every day was 12 to 1, and I would go into the break room, and uh, there was a number of other people at break at the same time, and and I realized that this time was a a huge time of temptation. I wanted to be a good testimony, but yet uh, uh, on the other side, it was a time when uh, you know, it was causing me temptation. There was, there was conversations. There was things being watched on TV, and it was just, it was causing me a problem. And, and, and I kept saying, God, this temptation keeps coming in my way, and, and I had to, I had to get, get out. I had to find other times to be a testimony. I had to flee. And sometimes that's what we have to do: is we have to flee those things, crowd to God for deliverance, and flee. Number four: spend time in the Word of God. My mom gave me a Bible a number of years ago, and in it she wrote this phrase, and I know this wasn't original with her, but it's something that has stuck with me. She, has, she wrote this phrase, Sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. Jesus defeated Satan in, in, uh, during his time of temptation in the wilderness by quoting Scripture. You get in temptation, and, and the best weapon you have is the Word of God. And sometimes, you know what? You don't have the Word of God with you. And so you, the best thing you can do is memorize and meditate on the Word of God. Next. Fifth, deepen your love for Christ, your hatred for sin, and your desire to glorify God. The motive for killing sin is that God loves you. God gave Himself to you. That's your motive. Your motive for killing sin should not primarily be to get rid of a frustrating problem that is disrupting your life. Let me give you an example. For a husband to say, my anger is causing problems in my marriage, so I need to kill my anger, is not a valid reason, or or shouldn't be the, the number one reason for killing sin. Rather, it should be my anger is dishonoring God who gave His life for me. Deepen your love for Christ. Your hatred for sin and your desire to glorify Him. And then finally, walk each day in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Galatians, Paul says this, but if I walk by the Spirit, uh, I will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. If I walk by the Spirit, I will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. 
I want to conclude the rest of this portion that Pastor Will read in verse 14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The concluding part of this section is a reminder of the fact that we are, if we have um, turned to Christ and we are killing our sin, then we are uh, children of God and therefore we have the ability to call out Abba Father. Daddy Father. It's a loving term. But then he goes on and he tells us that, uh, that living that way means we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then here's another glorious thing. We are heirs together. Heirs together as, as, as a group of believers. And so therefore, since we are heirs together as a group of believers, that it is our responsibility to help each other grow. It is our responsibility to make sure that our fellow heirs are also addressing their sin. And we have the responsibility to do that. We go back to the idea of what we were talking about this year, and that is growing together. I, mean, I hope that you have relationships with each other in such a way that you can help each other through sin. I hope that you have set up in your life accountability with people in this room. I'm struggling this way. Will you help me? Will you keep me accountable? Here's the thing. Being a private person in this, okay, it's not going to help you grow. Being a person that says, yeah, I am, I am struggling. I appreciate there are some of you here in this room who have come to me and said, I'm struggling in this way or this way or this way. Can you help me out and keep me accountable? And I know some of you have other people that you do the same thing with, and that is, that is what the body of Christ is to be doing. We're going to be helping each other. This killing of flesh, this killing of sin cannot happen uh, alone. We need to work together, do it together closing word of prayer. God, we are thankful for your word and we just pray that you help us to understand in a greater way that we need to get rid of sin in our life. Lord, we can't be satisfied just with being a person who comes to church and tries to do good things. No, we need to be people who are fighting against our sin and I pray that you will help us Lord. You strengthen us, Lord. Help me. And help us to be accountable to each other. Help us to be willing to share the scripture says for us to confess our sin once to one to another. Lord, I pray that help us to do that as well. In Jesus' name. Amen.